Good morning, everybody. Hope you're having a wonderful morning today. It's beautiful outside, isn't it? I don't know if you watch the news at all, uh, but lately, recently, I should say, uh, there's a state representative from the state of Colorado, her name's Lauren Boebert. She's been in the news. Uh, she and a date, they went to a stage production of Beetlejuice, and it was billed as a family-friendly show. And about midway through the show, she and her date, they were asked to leave the, the theater, and they were escorted out by an usher. Now, she is a somewhat controversial figure to some, and so she said that this was a politically motivated stunt. They don't like her politics, and so they were taking it out on her. But there was some video from the theater that came out that shows Representative Bobert and her date behaving in, we'll say, some not-so-family-friendly ways right there in the middle of the show. And so maybe her ousting was entirely justified. But that didn't stop her on her way out from protesting and even using one of my least favorite phrases, directing it at this usher who's just doing his job. She said, do you know who I am? <sighs> I heard some people groan too. I hate that phrase. What leads people to think so highly of themselves? There's an Instagram account. It's called Rich Kids of the Internet. And it features picture after picture after picture of teens and 20-somethings just kind of flaunting the opulence of their wealth, or I should probably say their parents' wealth. And these photos, they range from everywhere from driving sports cars that cost more than my house, to flying in private jets, dining on exquisite meals, to pictures uh, you know, buried neck deep in shopping bags from all of these exclusive high-end luxury labels. And the kicker of this is that these kids, these rich kids of the internet, will pay $2,000 and up just to have their photo posted on this account. That's a lot of money, folks. And it leads me to ask, what leads somebody to need that sort of recognition? And for that reason, of all things, there's a lot of different examples and stories that we could share this morning, and they're not unrelated, by the way. This isn't just random story time with Jordan. These actually do have a lot to do with each other. They're different expressions of this same cultural attitude. It's a worldly sense of self-importance. It's an attitude that we deal with on a regular basis because in our culture today, there's a recipe for how to live a successful life. And oftentimes, that recipe involves a healthy dose of me, me, my, mine, and I kind of entertaining and indulging the self. And we see that in practical ways. You and I, we deal with this. I'm not paying $2,000 to post a photo online, but I nonetheless, much like you, am tempted to indulge this worldly sense of self-importance. Here's a great relatable example of this. Let's throw this picture up there, Steve. This is a, uh, a large pumpkin swirl iced coffee from Dunkin' Donuts. It's a very popular seasonal drink. Uh, they recently brought it back. I'm told it's very delicious. I'm also told it has the same amount of sugar in it as 14 glazed donuts. Right? Yeah. However, we live in a culture that would say, you know what? It's not healthy, but you need to drink it. You need to practice some self-care. You're worth it. Now, self-care is an important thing. We all need to do things that fill us up. Hopefully with positivity and energy, not with sugar and diabetes. But we need to do things that fill us up, right? Things that give us a healthy perspective on ourselves and on the world around us. But this is not self-care. Well, Jesus, that's self-care. But let's pretend the donuts up there, the coffee's up there. This, that's not self-care. That's self-indulgence. 
That's partaking of something that isn't good for me. It just feels good. But our culture gets that mixed up. And they think if it feels good, if it's something you want, if it satisfies the self, well, then it must be good for you. It all stems from the same idea, the sense of worldly self-importance. And that topic, that idea is what our passage this morning is going to touch on. We're going to continue a series we've been in since last December, a year-ish with Jesus, where we're just walking through the book of Matthew until next April. uh, And we're just seeing what does Jesus do? What does he have to say? What is he going to teach us about following him and being a part of his kingdom in this world? That's what this series is about. Today we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can always follow along on the screen behind. Or as always, download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. All kinds of tools to make the use of. By the way, if you haven't checked those tools out, you might want to peruse those at some point. Uh, I used that word incorrectly, as we learned a few weeks ago. That means to search something carefully. You may want to glance through those tools. Uh, All right. Some of you are tracking with me. Thanks, Chris. So anyway, (laughs) you may want to glance at those tools sometime. Today, we're going to look at the sermon notes tool. It's got our outline, our passage pulled open, ready to roll with. So... This attitude, this worldly sense of self-importance, this is obviously not a desirable characteristic or trait. But what's the alternative? What is the attitudinal shift that Jesus calls his people to partake in? That's what we're going to see in our passage. And we're going to see Jesus does not call us to this worldly sense of self-importance. Rather, he calls us to an attitude of humility, as our passage reveals. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's a pretty forward question when you stop and think about it. If we were to read Luke's gospel, we'd read, they're actually arguing about who is the greatest in heaven. And I imagine Jesus probably overhears this and says, hey, fellas, what? It's a very forward question because they're, you know, they're watching this community blossom, this kingdom of heaven idea that Jesus has been teaching for two years now. And being in at the ground floor like they are, they want to know who's top dog, who's number one, what do we have to gain from this, Jesus? And I hope you can hear in that question this sense of worldly, or this worldly sense of self-importance. It's all concerned about status. And you know what, status, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Status is something that appeals to us in various levels, right? In a mild form, uh, status, it can sometimes determine why we buy the car we buy. When you get down to brass tacks, there's not a whole lot of difference between a base model Nissan Altima and a base model Mercedes-Benz C-Class. They do relatively the same thing. One costs $20,000 more, and you might say, well, why would you buy that? Well, there's a status attached to it. You know, there's this idea, people look at you a different way, you feel a little different, there's an emotional thing that happens when you get into one car versus the others, and that's a mild way that status plays a role in that, and no offense to anybody driving a Benz, it's just an example, that's what happens, why we buy one thing versus the other. In a not-so-mild sense, we can go back to Representative Boebert and her response, do you know who I am? In a not-so-mild sense, this concern for status really elevates us, and it can impact the way we treat other people, the way we think about other people, and lead us into some serious sin. So status, it does matter. And these disciples of Jesus, that's what they're thinking of. Where are we going to fall in the pecking order? Who's going to be highest on the totem pole? Here's Jesus' response to all of this. Look at verse 2. It says, he called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. He said, truly, I tell you, unless you change, you become like little children. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus looks at these guys and their worldly sense of self-importance, and he pulls over this little child. And when we say little child, it says he calls the child over. So the child can walk. He's called a little child. So we're probably looking at somewhere of toddler, elementary school, somewhere in that age range. The kid comes over, and Jesus kind of points to him as an example. Now, in our culture today, we look at children as precious, special, inherently valuable, you know, little baby angels. That's how we see children in our culture. That was not the case in the first century Jewish context. And it's not that people didn't love their children. It's not that children were were looked down on or anything. It's just children didn't have a lot of status or value in society along those lines. And it makes sense when you think about it. Because this was a culture where your value greatly derived from your ability to produce and contribute to the community. And in in a much more serious and interconnected way, like your survival depended upon your ability to produce. There were no social services or safety nets or anything like that. Now, children, just by nature being children, take more than they give. That's what you do as a kid. And so you can see in a culture like that how kids would have kind of a low status. And that was the case. But Jesus points to this child and he says, unless you become more like this child, and later he points out the humility of this child, you're not even going to enter the kingdom, fellas. Let alone be great in it. And that really got me thinking, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the humility of a child? Because children often do not act in humble ways. In fact, children often act in very self-absorbed ways, as if they're the center of the universe. If you've ever told a toddler no in the middle of the toy aisle at Walmart, only to be met with a complete and utter meltdown... You know exactly what I'm talking about. They're very self-absorbed creatures. And it's not their fault. Developmentally, that's just where their brain is. That's their job, right? So what does he mean by this? And I started thinking, I started reading. And for all of their self-absorbed actions at times, children have very little, if any, regard for something like status. They're not even aware that a social hierarchy exists, let alone where different people fall on it. My, my four-year-old Ben, he's a good example of this. He's four. He just started preschool. Uh, he's got a lot of different kids in his class. The one that he talks about playing with the most is a girl named Kinley. Uh, Kinley's a girl. Ben's a boy. He doesn't care. You know, it's not boys are better than girls or girls have cooties or any of that. Ben just wants to play. People are people. He made a comment the other day. He said, Kinley and I have different skin color than other people in our class. I said, oh, yeah? What do you think of that? I don't know. And then he ran off to play Legos. He doesn't care. Race, ethnicity, all that, intersectionality, he doesn't care. He just wants to play. He has ran up and talked to guys in business suits. He will run up and talk to guys in work boots. He has invited uh, people who look like they're doing well into our home to play. He's invited people who look like they're in hard times into our home to play. Never with our permission, by the way. If there's anything Ben cares less about than status, it's what mom and dad have to say about strangers. Like, he just talks to everybody. But he doesn't care. He does not care where people fall in the ladder. He just wants to play. People are people. And a lot of kids are that way. People are just people. And that's kind of Jesus' point. He looks at these guys who are so concerned about being on top, about being number one, about being the greatest and top dog, And he's simply saying, guys, you've got it all wrong. People are people. 
And unless you can humble yourself and start to think of yourselves in a little more humble terms like these kids, you're not even going to make it in, let alone be great. It's an attitude of humility that Jesus calls his people towards. And you can see, just in this little example of the child, how humility is different and how it changes us a little bit. And it changes the way that we look at ourselves and our own sense of self-importance, how it deflates our ego a little bit. But humility does so much more than just change how we see ourselves. It is an incredibly rich and powerful concept that also changes the way we see other people. And it changes our relationships to them. Humility impacts us not just personally, but also interpersonally. And we see that in this passage as well. I don't know if you picked up on it. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But Jesus says something kind of paradoxical here. He says, unless you become more like this little child, unless you're more humble like this child, you will not enter the kingdom. And then he says in verse 4, whoever takes the lowly position of this child will be the greatest in the kingdom. So the same quality that gets us in the door is the quality that also simultaneously makes us the greatest. And if you think about that logically, it kind of means like everybody in God's kingdom is the greatest. It'd kind of be like if you went to a, a concert and the lead singer gets into it and he's excited and he's saying, if you bought a ticket to this show, you are our number one fan. And the crowd goes, ah. Well, everybody had to buy a ticket to get in the door. So everybody is the number one fan, I guess. And if everybody's number one, well, then nobody's number one. That's kind of the nature of being number one. You think about it in a sports context. If you are the number one home run hitter in the league, that means that nobody is above you. Nobody's greater. Everybody else is below you. But if everybody's the number one hitter in the league... Well, there's nobody above you, but there's also nobody below you. You're all just kind of equal on level ground. And the same thing in the kingdom. If you're the greatest in the kingdom because of your humility, well, everybody's humble. That's how you got in. Everybody is number one. Nobody's greater, nobody's lesser. We're all just equal. We stand shoulder to shoulder. And again, that's Jesus' point. In this kingdom, there is no hierarchy of greatness. You were just brought into this kingdom. That means the people that maybe were tempted by this worldly standard of self-importance to look down upon or to think are lowly or even to think of ourselves more highly, that dynamic changes. You can see that in verse 5. Let's keep reading. Jesus says, whoever welcomes one such child, still thinking about the lowly child, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, there's not a lot of reason, honestly, to be welcoming or to show hospitality to a little child. They have no social standing. They have no status in society. It's really not going to benefit you in any way. But Jesus says, if you will lower yourself, you'll humble yourself, and you'll show hospitality to lowly people like this. You do that in my name. You welcome me. He attaches some significance to that. It's as if you're ushering in Jesus himself. Now, who wouldn't want to usher Jesus into their home, right? That's somebody with some status. That's somebody great. We definitely want that. And what Jesus is saying is when you humble yourself, when you serve and you love on the least of these, it's like you're loving me and welcoming me. This is important. It changes the way we look at people and the way we interact with people. Because all of these worldly things that we attach such greatness to, like wealth and achievement and status and, and accomplishment and power and influence, all this stuff, it doesn't mean jack in God's kingdom. It really doesn't. 
None of that stuff is the reason God welcomes us into his people. The only reason any of us stand among his is because of his grace. It's God's grace that welcomes us into the kingdom. There's a story I read this week, kind of a touching story. It's about a, it starts off about a, a six-time felon named Doc Amy. He lived in a, a suburb of Houston, Texas. Uh, his latest arrest, his sixth arrest, was on a gun charge. So he went to prison. While he was in prison, this, this was, for whatever reason, the incident that finally woke him up. And he realized, my whole life's passing by. I've been in and out of jail. i got to change. I need something that can change me. So he started praying to God, and he said, God, you get me out of this. My life is yours. So a year and a half later, he went on parole, and he made good on his promise. He started going to church, started going to a Bible study. He actually, uh, he became Christian, obviously. He actually uh, started studying biblical studies, got an associate's degree in that. He was on this track of, of really being a faithful guy, and God kind of put it on his heart. He said, here's your ministry, Doc. I want you to go pray for police officers. Well, that's an interesting twist, right? <laughs> and so Doc started praying with police officers and ministering to them. And, and there was one officer in particular that was on his heart. This guy named Officer Salvador Chapa, and he was the officer in charge of his last arrest. Why don't you go ahead and put that picture up there, Steve? So Doc one day got his chance. There was a community barbecue that was being held in honor of Officer Chapa and a few other officers, but they were being celebrated in their local community. And Doc saw this and he went there. He kind of found Chapa when he was kind of by himself a little bit, introduced himself, explained, hey, here's who I am. And I just, I just want to say thank you because you did your job. You played a huge role in changing my life and get me on the right, right track. And I just want to pray with you. And Officer Chapa, a believer himself, he said, I'd love that. And they started to pray and talk. They actually became friends. They still have a, a friendship today. And this is just kind of an interesting and touching story because we've got two people here that fall on opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got a six-time felon, somebody that walks down the street and parents maybe hold the kids a little closer. They don't want him to grow, their kids to grow up and be like Doc Avery, right? You got Officer Salvador Chapa, a guy who's literally being celebrated by his community. He's the kind of guy you point to to your kids and say, why don't you be like that guy? We got highs and lows here. And yet both of them come together. Both of them pray together. Both of them have a friendship with one another because all of this other worldly sense of self-importance self and status, all that junk, it doesn't matter. And these guys are a wonderful picture of what this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder level playing field looks like. Because at the end of the day, here's the truth. Both of these guys have the same problem. It's called sin. And it may look a little different in their lives, but at the end of the day, it's the same problem. And at the end of the day, there's only one solution to that problem. And that's Jesus and the work that he did on that cross. Both got the same problem. Both need the same solution. So on what grounds is any one of them any better than the other? They're not. And these two guys, to their credit, they recognize that. They stand shoulder to shoulder, equal in this kingdom. And that same thing's true for you and I today. There's plenty of things in this world that might puff us up or cause us to look down on others, or, or maybe not even look down on others, but just kind of distance ourselves from people a little bit. Power, status, wealth, achievement, accomplishment, you name it, right? All that stuff that doesn't matter, God doesn't care about. Because at the end of the day, you, I, everybody outside these doors, we all got the same problem of sin. Might be big sin, might be little sin, it doesn't matter. Because there's no such thing as just kind of being removed from God's presence and really being removed from God's presence. You're either in or you're out. It doesn't matter what you've done. 
We got this problem where we rejected God and we distance ourselves from the one who gives life. And we all, because we got the same problem, we all need the same solution. And that's the work of Christ. The one who atones for our sins. That word, that means he makes peace where once there was conflict. He makes peace for you. He makes peace for me. He makes peace for anybody who calls on his name and says, I want to follow you as my Lord. And God extends his grace to us on the basis of that faith. That and that alone is why we can call ourselves God's people. That and that alone is why we can have hope of deliverance and life beyond this world and all of its junk. It is the grace of God. And I didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. They didn't earn it. Doc didn't earn it. Choppa didn't earn it. It was given to us because of God's work in Christ. So by what means and on what grounds are we going to look at anybody and say, no, you're lowly. You're the least of these. I'm up here. You're down. No. No, humility changes us. It deflates that ego that sometimes this world wants to puff up. But it also changes the way we see others. And it elevates those who our world would say are lowly. Because at the end of the day, just like kids say, people are people. They're people God loves. They're people God saves. They're people Jesus died for. It changes us. And there's a lot more we need to say about humility. Like I said, it is a rich and a robust concept. And I would encourage everybody to dig in, to see everything that the Bible has to say about it. If you really want to dig in, we got a Bible reading plan this week all about humility. You can check out the YouVersion Bible app. If you want to do a deep study on humility, you read through Philippians chapter 2. And you go slow and you take your time because it's worth it. Humility is powerful, but we can't talk about everything this morning. So let's get down to the real question. How do we cultivate an attitude of humility? What do we do? How do we change? I wish Jesus like, gave us the five-step program of here's how you develop a humble heart, but he doesn't. But as we keep reading this interaction with his disciples, he does say some things that challenge us and they give us some action steps that we can start to incorporate in our lives today. So let's take a look back at our passage. Look at verse 6. It says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, meaning those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If I could summarize Jesus a little bit, everybody's going to sin. It's inevitable. We got the sinful nature baked in our hearts. You can resist it. You can fight it. The work of the Holy Spirit works to change you. But at the end of the day, you are going to stumble. It's going to happen. Not desirable. Not something to pursue. But it will happen. But woe, caution, worry, tragedy to the person who causes other people to stumble, to sin, to fall. What he's essentially saying there is we need to be very careful in how we act. Because our actions, our words, and so on. They leave an impression upon people. And some people are very impressionable. And they will make choices. And they will chart a course for their lives based off of the words that we say. Or they will make choices and they will cultivate a lifestyle and take actions based upon the example that we set. And I'm not even talking about children. There are some adults that are just very impressionable people. In fact, all of us are impressionable to some extent. And we need to be very careful because should we lead somebody into sin? Should our carelessness lead somebody to pursue some sinful action? Jesus says, it would just be better if you just drowned in the ocean and not let that happen. Which may sound extreme, but maybe that just elevates the seriousness of this. 
Now, what does this have to do with humility? Well, in hearing this, there's this certain temptation that oftentimes crops up in our minds. And some of us are probably wrestling with it right now. We may not realize it. When we hear Jesus say, be careful how you live because other people are watching, maybe we're tempted to think, why is that my problem? Why should I have to censor my life because other people struggle or stumble? Why should I have to accommodate for some weakness that they have? That's not right. That's their problem. Essentially, it's that idea, that worldly sense of self-importance. I shouldn't need to censor my life. That's beneath me. That's not something I should have to do because those people, they stumble, they struggle, they have weakness, they have sensitivities. Why is that my problem? Do you see how, in one sense, that attitude elevates us and it devalues others because they struggle in ways that we might not? It's the same attitude, that worldly sense of self-importance. That's why Jesus gives this example right on the the heels of this call for humility. He calls us to be conscious, yeah, conscious of people. So how do we, what do we do? How do we do this? If we're going to talk about developing humility, there's an action plan right here. Consciously care about the lowly in this world. Those people who may fall below you in the world's pecking order, consciously care about these people. Choose to care, actively care for them. The same way that Jesus calls his disciples to actively care and to welcome that little child. Because when we consciously care about people who the world says are beneath us, that humbles us. And that begins to change us in some pretty profound ways. In the town I grew up in, uh, it was a pretty small community, uh, about this size, a safe town. Homelessness was, it just wasn't a thing. If it was, it was invisible to me. I had no experiences with it. Now, city I went to college in is a very different story. There's a lot of homeless people. They're kind of all over the place. So that was, that was kind of a wake-up call to me. And I didn't have any familiarity with homeless people or talking with them or interacting with them. And so my limited interactions with the homeless were incredibly uncomfortable. And part of me thought, well, it's just because I'm not familiar. I just need to get used to it. But as I started to reflect on it a little bit more, I realized it was more than just a lack of familiarity. I kind of looked down on them. This was their fault, obviously. They made some choice. That's all the things that run through your mind. And I realized, I don't like that attitude. And I was kind of convicted. Maybe I need to change. And so I started to take some steps to consciously care about the least of these, or those who appear to be lowly in this world. And I started small. You know, whereas once I would just kind of drive by and not make eye contact, I'd just kind of wave. I'd make it a point to try to be friendly. And we got to maybe talk, say hi, have a conversation, and just progressive steps from there. And about six months into it, it was at Walmart. It's kind of a milestone moment for me. So Walmart came out, had some groceries. There's a lady outside, and just kind of felt led. You can go get her some groceries. So I went and got some groceries, came out. I was talking with her, just listening to her story, you know, how she got here, what she's doing, what she does for fun, that kind of stuff. And obviously, I can't change any. I'm 19 years old. I barely have money, right? The only reason I'm not homeless is I live in a college dorm. But, like, I just wanted to do something for this woman because I felt for her. And so I said, can I give you a hug? Would that be okay? She said, I would love a hug. And so I gave this woman this hug in this Walmart parking lot, and we talked a little bit longer and went our ways. I just kind of thought, six months ago, I, I wouldn't have even looked at her in the car. But just simply choosing to consciously care about somebody has 
change me a little bit, where I care about this person. She has value. She has dignity. She's worthwhile. God cares about this person. It was a very humbling experience. And I would share that and encourage each of us to participate in that. It doesn't matter where in the world's pecking order we fall, there's always somebody about which it's tempting to say, well, at least I'm not that guy. Well, maybe that guy's the one that God's calling us to consciously care about, to love, to serve, to humble ourselves, to show dignity and value and concern. So that would be my challenge to each of us this week. Be actively looking for opportunities and individuals that we can consciously care about what the world would say are the least of these. Humble ourselves. Elevate them. Because we all got the same problem at the end of the day. It's sin. And there's only one solution, and each and every one of us need it equally as Jesus. And God has equally offered each of us this opportunity to come and to be saved. And he's equally lavished his love upon us and said, I want to make you mine and I want to wash you clean. And if that's how God views each and every one of us, regardless of what status the world may attach to us, who are we to argue and say different? Humility. That's the attitude he calls us to. So let's grow in that humility and imitation of Christ and the humility he showed when he came, he stepped out of heaven, and he died for you and I. Because that's what we're called to do. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for this challenge. And it is a challenge. We live in a world that puffs us up and encourages us to pursue selfishness in different ways and aspects and, and degrees. And I pray that you'd open our eyes and you'd open our hearts, that you would humble us, that we would embrace that humility, that we might look more like our Savior. I pray it would change the way we see each other and other people in our world around us, that we would begin to see them as you do, as children, loved, worthy. I pray people would begin to be cared and feel the care and the love of God through the actions of those in this community, in this church. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us in this endeavor, and at the end of the day, that you would be praised that we would see you enter your kingdom, that we would be great among you, standing shoulder to shoulder, that we would taste the rewards of humility, not the selfishness of this life, but the glories of life to come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.